Hello world, I'm Ethan Hansen, and this is Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and interviews. This type of episode is the main type now. It's a longer form interview in which I also discuss an interesting topic and some news in quantum computing with my interview guest. I'm calling it a hybrid episode. For all of you out there who are interested in getting into quantum computing but don't know where to start, this episode's for you. Mikhail and I talked about how to get a job in quantum computing, the Quantum Open Source Foundation Mentorship Program, which is now accepting applications, and a bit about QAOA at the end. Take it away, Amy from the past. So I have with me Mikhail, who is a quantum software engineer at Zapata Computing. Mikhail, welcome to the show. Hi, Eden. Thanks for having me. All right. So before we dive into sort of your work with the Quantum Open Source Foundation, which is sort of one of the big things we're going to talk about, and how do you get a job in quantum computing, could you give us a bit of background about how you actually got a job in quantum computing? Sure, sure. So I come from Poland, and I've been studying physics and automation control and robotics. So I did bachelor the first one, bachelor and master in the second one. And wow. somewhere around like my, my bachelor uh, physics, I was uh, taking this course on quantum computing. And it was a pretty interesting course. But, you know, like there weren't that many options for me to, to do anything with quantum computing. And there were like a lot of other interesting things in the world. So I right. just, you know, like left that. And then a couple of years later, after I finished studies um, and like when I was working at Estimote, an IoT startup in Krakow, I've heard that you know quantum computing is like, is starting to be real thing. You know that there are actually companies building quantum computers, and it's like not just some experiment in like some physics lab, but people it is like actually starting to be an industry. So then I yeah. decided I would like to. To switch to quantum computing. Huh. And, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm curious yeah. when when was this and what what university offers a course in quantum computing? Oh, so actually that was um, Jagiellonian University in Krakow. So, uh, but this was you know like one semester course, nothing nothing fancy, like okay. just basic. Mm, and that was I've. I got like in the, the course I took was around 2013, I think, and then I got interested in quantum computing again in 2018. Okay, wow. So it was about two years ago, and actually it was due to a podcast. So I heard an interview with Chad Rigetti, or maybe that was someone else from Rigetti at <laughs> A16Z podcast, which okay, I was yeah. listening to. So started the whole journey for me. Very interesting. Cool. And so then if you only had that one class in quantum computing, um, I'm assuming your physics background helped. Um, but was there anything in the more engineering side that was, you know, you would say beneficial? Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. So when I decided I would like to go into quantum computing, um, I started when I was like I was still in my old job, but you know, kind of in parallel, I, I started 
uh, on working on a project with a startup from Poland, Bor Technology. And hmm. well, thing that definitely helped uh, helped was like ability to just like learn pretty quickly to like new concepts, you know, to okay. understand, you know, the be like ability to, to read papers. Um, yeah. And I think also just like the, the, the general kind of, you know, broad spectrum of things I've, I've done before. Like hmm. I've done a little bit of web development. I've done a little bit of um, computational geometry, machine learning, um, mobile applications and so on. So hmm. basically or like from the perspective of getting a job, um, it was pretty important because at the bar, we wanted to do a project which was not only you know, doing some research, but then actually creating a demo application out of this. So, okay. you know, it was good that I knew how to create a web application and like, you know, kind of tie this, this all, all the things together. So, mm -hmm. and that's one thing. And the other thing is that since I didn't have a lot of kind of quantum computing background, just a little bit, yeah. actually a lot of knowledge and skills from machine learning turned out to be hmm. you know, very useful because Interesting. I was the, the project I was working on was about QAA and QAA you know it's a variational algorithm so there is like classical optimization loop and mm -hmm. well the optimization is basically the same uh, whether in quantum or in classical world so just like right. kind of knowledge about you know optimization and um, how to train models in machine learning was kind of made it more familiar, like the concept of variational quantum algorithm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I was actually I was going to ask what your project with Bohr was. Was it just implementing um, quantum or QAOA on a actual hardware? Actually, not. And the project was about implementing prototype of QAOA for solving traveling salesman problem and okay uh, it was just like for for simulator it actually I, I, I don't touch the real device with that so the idea okay. was to first do some like implement it then like do some research trying to you know improve the performance and then do a demo application like you know with, with some points like being able to um, like submit the problem and get the results. Interesting. And uh, what were the max number of nodes you could have in that uh, TSP? Oh, so so with this approach, unfortunately, the max number of nodes was five, I think. So okay. not not very impressive. So the problem with traveling salesman is with at least with, with that implementation is that. It, Scaled as n squared. So for n mm -hmm. cities, for n nodes in the graph, you needed n squared qubits. Actually, n okay. minus one squared, but but still, like the scaling was yeah. uh, very like unfortunate. But that was yeah. that was quadratic. actually a, yeah quadratic. I think. Okay, that's how it's called. But actually, this is um, uh, that was good in the sense that it learned me. You know pretty quickly that this is one of the things mm -hmm. that you really have to pay attention to and 
that actually this is very important when you're designing an algorithm to, to take this factor into account because you know even even though your method might look like probably like good like very interesting then the scaling mm -hmm. in the number of qubits can simply like devastate yeah definitely um do you i guess quadratic scaling is a still an improvement over the the classical um way no, 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 to no, solve no. No, no, no. no it's not. The quadratic scaling. No, no, no. It was quadratic scaling in number of qubits. No, not in oh, terms okay. of uh, like numbers of you know steps of the algorithm or anything else. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I so see. there are like two, two, two scalings actually. One is in, uh, probably even more. One is number of qubits, and the other is in, in like the the depth of the algorithm. Yep. Okay. And then the depth of the algorithm did that also uh, scale quadratically with the uh, the number of nodes? Uh, no, no, no. I uh, actually I have not checked what was the the scaling of the depth. Like this is not not a okay. thing I actually checked. Uh, one thing I, I know for sure was that first I tried to implement the ansatz kind of in a more naive way, and it didn't work very well. And then I found hmm. research by Stuart Hutfield. From NASA, and well, he proposed a much better way of you know creating an ansatz, and it turned out I got like much much better results in the sense of how often I was getting the correct result. The problem was that the ansatz was like much deeper, so mm. you know there, there was this trade-off. Yeah, and this okay. was also like pretty pretty interesting for me to learn that you know you can have a good method which like is you know, very well motivated from like algorithmic and physics perspective. But the problem is that you have the, like the actual quantum circuit gets so deep and there are so many gates that on the mm -hmm. devices, you will just get normal rubbish. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so now you've got this experience with Bohr and uh, what, what do you do after that? Where's the next step? So, I was with Bohr um, happily until around March, I think, 2019. So it was. So I actually started working with Bohr full time in September. So okay. Before I, I was kind of working on this project part time, and so I have been in Bohr for I don't know like eight months or something like this. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. then the the company like. Finished its life, and I had to, you know, start looking for another job. You know, startups. Um, it happens to them yep. that they don't don't make it. So, yeah. So I was looking for another job, and I started sending out some CVs, talking with some companies, and finally, luckily, I got into into Zapata, where yeah, I'm today. Awesome. And so then at Zbada, uh, as a quantum software engineer, what, what are you working on? Sure. So I've been working on like a couple of different, not necessarily very related things. Mm. I would say that lately I was working on developing scientific software. 
so like libraries we have we we use uh, for orchestra our our platform is Avada for doing quantum computation, and that's mainly I would say like software engineering uh, work with a lot of you know architecture and design. So the idea is yeah. to you know design the the like the whole library the whole, like all the modules in a way where you can easily like just you know change different um different parts for example like simulators or i don't know like ansas or like optimizer so that when you mm -hmm. actually want to change one optimizer for another it doesn't you, you don't need to rewrite like a lot of code you just need to like change one function call and it turns out that uh, you know designing it in a way that actually like convenient to use and like scalable and actually modular uh, is pretty pretty hard and like for example like just just designing how do we want to um, work with ansatzes um mm -hmm. it took us about like three weeks to, you know figure out how to code this in a way that like is good so yeah wow. mostly mostly that i would say but also like you know implementing some algorithms some uh, methods from different papers like making some demos for uh, like i was at q2b last year like showing some demo of orchestra and a lot of you know, okay different different nice yeah yeah so that's really interesting and i've got a i also work at zapata so <laughs> I, we we work together. I, we both got a plug orchestra. At the fact that a lot of work goes into making everything about it, you know, as extensible and scalable as possible. Um, but yeah, so let's. I think we can move on. That's a really good segue. After talking about how you got your job at Zapata, um, about how to get a job in quantum computing generally. So uh, a paper that we have both seen uh, is this one that talks about um, preparing for the quantum revolution, what is the role of higher education. Um, and if you're interested in looking at this, viewers or listeners, uh, I've got a link to it in the show notes. Um, and an interesting note, just right off the bat, is you talked how machine learning was actually very useful to you. Um, but this paper finds that none of the quantum computing companies uh, did not uh, put machine learning on their skills list um, despite 38% of the companies mentioning it. Um, so that's that's an interesting thing I noticed from this paper. Is there anything in this paper that like you'd want to discuss? Sure. So, well, one thing that, like, well, one thing to say uh, at the beginning is, you know, I work on software. I will work on algorithms. And mm -hmm. this paper is, like, much broader, right? It's also about, you know, hardware control uh, theory and yeah. like science like all, all the other things as well so my perspective is you know def, like definitely biased and like definitely kind of limited to what you know I'm uh, working on but with that mm -hmm. being said um, so I think that the machine learning machine learning like itself is not kind of crucial skill for quantum computing, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But it also depends on like at what you know state you are. Because okay. okay, so I set aside like quantum machine learning. But if if you are doing want to do quantum machine learning, it 
if you are planning to get a job in a quantum machine learning startup, then like sure, like classical machine learning, uh, like knowledge of classical machine learning is very useful. But right. if, for example, you are planning to work on, I don't know, uh, like just like writing libraries and software, not necessarily machine learning related, it might not look mm-hmm. as something that's very useful. But in my opinion, it is because when you're doing machine learning, you usually learn kind of a similar skill set that is then useful in quantum computing. So one thing is, you know, like software engineering to some extent. I mean, you you cannot do machine learning just like on a piece of paper. I I bet you can, but, you know, who does it? And then the other thing is data analysis. Mm. Okay. So the other thing is data analysis and um, research. And I think this is pretty, pretty useful in quantum computing. So these are like skills. So for example, in the paper you mentioned, data analysis was actually a skill that was one of the most important Right, but yeah, 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 but machine learning not, but like actually, you know, doing machine learning allows you to learn more about data analysis, maybe in a little bit indirect way, but it's definitely useful. The same for like research process, right? Because for machine learning, you have to kind of design an experiment, see, you know, what happened, what happens when you're tuning specific parameters, what happens where you are throwing new data and so on and so on. And the same goes with, you know, quantum computing where you need to tune your algorithm. You need to see what happens when you are changing, um, you know, parameters, changing the problem, the, the graph you want to solve and so on and so on. So, yeah, I think actually maybe like having, you know, 15 years experience in machine learning might not be like super valuable. It might be, but like it might not be super valuable for quantum computing in some sense. But having, you know, when you are just finished your studies and you have, you know, some quantum computing, uh, sorry, some machine learning, you probably acquired in the process of learning machine learning some skills that are transferable, transferable to quantum computing. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm actually getting. Um, some I'm actually getting some echo. echo. Yeah, so I know so this. I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna go working. So <laughs> sorry for that. Okay. Okay. Hello, Ethan in the editing room here, which is also the recording studio, which is also my bedroom. It all happens in the same room. Uh, in any case, when we were recording this, I was hearing myself echo very clearly in Mikhail's audio. Luckily, that doesn't seem to have come through in the final audio that I downloaded at the end. In any case, I fiddled with the audio settings, and so I stopped one track and started another. Um, That's why there's this break in the middle, and we're jumping back into the interview right now. Yeah, so jumping right back in, there were some technical difficulties. We're on a new recording now. Uh, But yeah, I think that definitely... Maybe not having, like you said, 15 years of machine learning experience is going to be super beneficial, but having at least some knowledge of the basics can help with especially like variational quantum algorithms. 
um, such as like VQE or QAOA. And yeah, in general, one of the big, the one of the most um, requested skills in this uh, paper was uh, data analysis right after just being able to program and write code. So I think that that's, that's definitely something that's very beneficial. Yeah, that's true. Were were there anything? Was there anything else that stood out to you? Um, because I've got I've got a couple things, but I'm curious to know what what you thought of this paper. Mm, so, I mean, I think overall it's pretty pretty informative, and like shed some light. I like the broad perspective, you know, on the on the fact that they are analyzing and sorry analyzing you know various kind of aspects, not only software, for example. Mm, I don't know. Like I, I think the, the the focus in the paper was mostly on the um, bigger companies. Yeah. Uh, as far as I remember, they had just like a couple of you know a, a couple of like smaller ones, and then like mm -hmm. more bigger ones. So I, I guess like the bigger ones are you know companies like IBM, Google, and so on. Yeah. Mm, so. That's one thing. What else? I don't know. I mean, overall, yeah. I think it was it was pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so these are all companies that are you know, uh, if you're not going to read the paper, uh, people who are listening, uh, these are all companies that are part of the QEDC, um, Quantum Economic Development Consortium. And the number of large companies is 11, um, medium, there's six, and small, there's four. So they're, yeah, they're more large companies than small and medium combined. So they definitely have a bigger, a bigger weight in this study. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so also, something... Just like another thing, um, which yeah. is kind of contrary to my experience, is that, you know, the, the distribution of... Um, like you, you can the distribution of people having PhDs uh, mm -hmm. might be like misleading in some sense. Okay. So it's they're not stating you know that like in order to get into quantum computing you need to have PhD, but like it's definitely right. when you're just, like looking at the graphs and not like reading in detail what's happening there. It seems like you know definitely like most of the people are having phds and like most of the companies have like some phds and yeah this is something you know i don't have a phd i, I have master and mm -hmm. this is and i know people you know without phd being very successful in quantum computing uh, mm -hmm. or people doing their phds so like you know while in training right. still being very successful and mm, there's like one misconception i don't like that. A lot of people think that, okay, so actually in order to get into quantum computing, I need to do a PhD in physics or computer science or something related first. And well, that's not necessarily true because if you know what you want and if you have like, you know, good way of, like if you are consciously working on your career development and, you know, if you are a hard worker, you can definitely get there without PhD. So, yeah, yeah that's like one of the kind of common misconceptions. Mm, I yeah. like to do 
what would you what would be your advice to someone who hasn't necessarily started or I guess hasn't um, hasn't finished their bachelor's yet and maybe is interested in engineering or physics or computer science and um, doesn't want to go all the way to the PhD level um, how would you how would you recommend getting into quantum so I would First, like at the bachelor kind of level, I think still mm, people should do like a lot of exploration because, you know, I, I had very broad kind of program when I was at the university and I was able to, you know, play with electronics, embedded systems, robotics, automation, software, machine learning, research, yep. optimization methods, like a lot of different stuff. And it allowed me to really be very thoughtful about what I want to do in my life and what I don't want to do. So I would say explore different paths. Yeah. And then it turns out that actually my knowledge about, I don't know, like control systems um, is kind of helpful from time to time when I do quantum computing, you know, or optimization methods, definitely. But um, understanding how kind of like gate level circuits like classical circuits work now like mm -hmm. you know, helps me a little bit to like draw some uh, parallels in like quantum classical computing and well even though that was definitely something i wasn't like super interested in so try to learn broadly that's one thing and the other thing is i think be well be thoughtful about career development mm -hmm. Because, well, you can simply do random things in your life and like take random internships, random jobs. And while it mm -hmm. might, you know, give you some benefits and you might discover something very interesting, uh, actually being more, you know, organized is, will probably lead you to the, to the, your like target and goal better. Mm, and I think like, invest in kind of transferable skills okay. because you know quantum computing is a small market right now it's not that you know you have thousands of jobs uh to choose from it's more you know a couple of hundreds perhaps and very scattered across like different specialties and it's important to you know job security is an important problem so if you will just you know bet on quantum computing with like 100% of your focus, well, if you lose that bet, then um, that's not very good for you. But at the same time, what you can do is you can bet on quantum computing, but develop skills that are useful anyway. So mm -hmm. if you fail to get the job in quantum computing, you still are a good software engineer, or you still are you know, a good researcher, or um, electrical engineer, or something else, and you yeah. can get find a job elsewhere. And I also have, I mean, I have, haven't done like a lot of, um, I don't know, like research on that. I haven't talked with a lot of people. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if this generalizes, but my personal experience, just having ex like job experience in a field which is not quantum computing. So like classical software, IoT, yeah. and um, like computational geometry actually gives me the benefit of having some skills that 
or some knowledge to be like useful, like kind of surprisingly useful at some points in my quantum computing job. And also um, it gives you some more perspective, like some outside view, because if you are focused only on quantum computing, that's like the only thing you know, um, you sometimes might not, you know, see things um, differently than all the others. You're just like following, you know, everyone else. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I would say things like this are, are pretty that useful. Is, uh, definitely excellent advice. Um, and so then our first news topic uh, sort of relates to how to get a job in quantum computing. Yes. The Quantum Open Source Foundation mentorship program, uh, not as of recording this, but as of when it's released, uh, is open for applications. Um, tell us a bit about that. Sure. So at Quantum Open Source Foundation, QOSF, uh, we started a mentorship program last I think February, March. And the idea is to get people who are interested in quantum computing, but you know, not necessarily kind of working there or like, you know, not having many opportunities to, to get into this field. Uh, mm-hmm. actually work with mentors who are you know experienced um scientists, engineers in quantum computing and help like together, so like mentees together with mentors will just like create some open source projects um, and, you know, will benefit the community by, by doing so. So actually, you know, the idea is that mentee, mentees will benefit from learning from their older colleagues and learning from someone with actually you know, hands-on experience. Um, and at the same time, the projects, we, we try to kind of steer the projects in, in a way that they are actually useful for the community. So either there are like some tutorials or there are some, you know, reproduction of some research or some pull requests to existing repositories, existing projects. Yeah. So that, you know, like basically everyone benefits. That's really interesting and a great program. Um, and I guess there's not much there's not much news to talk about here. Um, how many people are you expecting to have come through this? And uh, where can people find out how to sign up and apply? Sure. So I don't know like how many people to expect. So last time we when we just announced it, um, there were. 200 applicants in like wow. two weeks span. <laughs> uh, then the applicants have to uh, like finish a kind of homework, you know, like assignment. They have mm-hmm. two weeks for that. Uh, and from the people who actually finished the, the assignment and that we, after, you know, like we reviewed it and it was high quality, uh, there were around like 40 people that passed for that training, but we didn't have enough mentors, you know, to kind of work with all of them. So in the end, we we had around, I, I think, four, 13 projects. So maybe, yeah, something like this. Um, around like 10-ish projects. So right now we have, I guess, a lot of people will sign up for this and we will have around you know, it's 
still not you know everyone confirmed but i guess 15 20 mentors so i expect having about like 20 ish projects um yeah probably more people will get in as you know some of the some of the projects will be done by teams i guess mm. so i hope to see like 30 40 people go through this um with about 20 projects but it also depends like you know um how many um, how many people will sign up how many you know time mentors will have and so on yeah yeah and yeah so the applications will be open until september 13th okay so if anyone is interested in applying well yeah i encourage you to do so Awesome. Just to also, just just to kind of encourage people even more, we had people ranging from high school students to um, postdocs in this program. So and like also like not even academics, uh, like just uh, you know professional software engineers. So basically, we we wanted to be venue for like you know people kind of for people outside of quantum computing worlds to, to, to get inside. Yeah, definitely. Um, so then I guess I have, I've got two more questions, actually. Uh, what's the purpose of the, the homework assignment? Um, what are you trying to do with that? And then the other question is, what if someone someone's interested in being a mentor for this program? Um, who do they contact or where do they go to sign up for that? Sure. So regarding this homework assignments, mm. So I was actually running before um, like this program. When I was at Bohr, I was running something like a little bit similar. And I noticed that a lot of people who are signing up and after like the first call with me, they actually, you know, don't follow up and they just kind of, you know, don't do anything. So I decided, you know, it's not worth wasting time with mentors on people who will drop off anyway. So the homework assignment is meant to A, like actually check if someone has skills necessary to succeed in the program. Mm -hmm. It's not very high bar in terms of skills of like quantum computing knowledge. It's more about good communication and you know being able to like learn. And the other thing is to actually see whether someone is going really interested enough to invest, you know, a couple of hours at least for the homework assignment. Because if someone is not going to invest, yeah. you know, four hours in doing that, they probably, you know, won't be very successful in the program anyway. Right. So that's the regarding the the oh and but that's like only one part. So that's like filtering part. But actually. Um, a lot, a lot of feedback from people who signed up for the program and who didn't get into that they actually learned a lot by just doing the, the assignments. So there is also yeah. this like you know, educational aspect of that. Uh, we try to make like have a couple of tasks to choose from, which are different, mm -hmm. which are like from slightly you know about slightly different things. So people have opportunity to you know just explore different topics in quantum computing and learn a little bit more about them very cool yeah and if anyone is interested in being a mentor for the program so if you are 
basically someone working in, in quantum computing day to day and would like to spend some time uh, mentoring people, uh, please contact me. Um, well, we'll probably give some contact info to me in the podcast uh, info, or yeah, you can yeah, we can have that in yeah we can have that in the show notes. Yeah, 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 and you can check out my blog mastyfox.com and okay. also find info there. So. Okay, awesome. Um, so there's no yeah. real good transition here because we're we're moving over to talking about more um, QAOA. Um, yeah. Which I guess there have been some QAOA projects in the Quantum Open Source Foundation mentorship program, but anyhow, no transition. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, there were two papers that are both in the show notes as well um, that we're, we're going to talk about. The first one is quantum approximate optimization of non-planar graph problems on a planar superconducting processor. And the second one is reachability deficits implicit in Google's quantum approximate optimization of graph problems. So uh, the first one, if I understand it correctly, is sort of a, hey, we can do this this cool thing on Google's Sycamore processor. And then the second one is yes, but also you're sort of at the very boundary of problems. And if you want to do anything more exciting or more useful, you're going to um, quickly run into issues with error rates and um, you're not going to be able to reach your, your goal. Uh, in other words, there's a reachability deficit. Um, is that is that a good summary of the the two papers back to back? Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Okay. All right. That's the that's the podcast. Uh, I'll have the next episode out when I get. To... <laughs> uh, yes. So <laughs> the first one, um, the quantum approximate optimization of non-planar graph problems on a planar superconducting processor. Um, I guess just. Walk walk us through uh, those non-planar graph problems. I understand that um, one was just essentially how do you? Uh, uh, sorry, I, I guess that I didn't really understand what they were talking about with the like hardware qubit graph. Um, that was a subset of the actual qubits on the Sycamore processor. Uh, do you, yeah. So, do you have any insight there? So, first thing is that they um, they have not used the whole um, Sycamore device, the whole Sycamore chip. They use yeah. just a subset of twenty three qubits. Okay. And they tested QAOA on like three types of graphs. So, the first type of graph was hardware grid, and that's basically well the graph which marks maps like exactly in Sycamore. So if you draw, you know, the picture of Sycamore and mm-hmm. like what are the qubits and how they are connected, mm-hmm. uh, well, that's the graph, right? Like, end of story. <laughs> so yeah. this is um, the easiest one, definitely, because, you know, it, it doesn't require any connections uh, like in, like in the... the there are no connections that exist in the graph, but not in the in the chip. So the yeah. compilation part is like very straightforward, and okay. well, this is not very you know, hard problem to solve. Uh, but also, it's worth noting that in general, it if 
you have a problem which you know maps well on like a grid structure, uh, then probably th this problem is not very hard to solve classically either, right? Because the, okay. the graph is very regular and you know you, you can exploit this fact. Yeah. So that was like one kind of type of the problems. The second type of the problems was free regular graphs. So a free regular graph is a graph where each node is connected to three others, uh, three other nodes, right? Yep. So yeah, that's 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 basically it. And the reason why they use this um, is well, among others, that is just like you know some let's say like way to generate random graphs. Mm -hmm. um, another thing is that it's kind of widely discussed in literature. So the first uh, QYOA mm -hmm. paper, as far as I remember, was exactly on three regular uh, graphs. Okay. And a lot of papers, uh, so it's like a standard benchmark in like QYOA literature to, you know, try to solve QYOA on three regular graphs. Mm. Mm -hmm. So like this is, you know, reasonable choice of problem. And the last yeah. one is called Sherrington Kirkpatrick graph or model. And yeah. this is basically a graph where you have all to all connectivity, right? So every node mm -hmm. connected to every other node. Um, the only reason, as far as I understand, that it's they don't refer to it as just like, you know, fully connected graph is that the weights of the edges are selected randomly uh, to be either one or minus one, right? So in fully connected graph, like a plain one, you have all the weights of all the weights in the graph are just set to one. Here they're either one or minus one randomly, and yeah, these were the three graphs they were um, using, and they were solving obviously like max cut problem on these graphs. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I say obviously because it's kind of the same situation that like max cut is the problem that is very widely discussed in the literature and mm -hmm. you know almost like every QAOA paper kind of tries to solve max cut problem. It's like a benchmark kind of problem. Yeah. Or QAOA. Yeah, so the the canonical or base problem that everyone has to get through to talk about other things. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. True. So, so what's interesting is about this is that they they talk about how much better they're able to do this on Sycamore processor as compared to other other times that this has been tried. Um, for instance, they they have this P number, which is sort of the number of almost the number of epochs or iterations that you do this. Uh, QAOA for, um, or I guess not not epochs, but the the depth, um, and they talk about how they can do that all the way out to three, um, uh, but before that was limited to um, just one, and uh, but what's interesting is that the number of qubits is still you know very much simulatable. Uh, the highest that they did for the hardware grid was 23 qubits and the highest that they got to for the the hardest one the Sherrington Kirkpatrick model was only 17 if I remember correctly um, so 
that sort of ties in well to this this next one, which is talking about reachability deficits. And it's it's sort of a, a response to this paper and talking about how in quantum approximation there is there are still problems and it there there this this earlier paper is sort of hiding the ball and um, not showing that if you go just essentially one step further there's a reachability like cliff face that you fall off of. Um, do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure, sure. So, well, one of the one of the things here is that it's like important to understand kind of the dynamic that is present in QA way, which is showed very well in the like the, the Google's paper right mm -hmm. so when we there's like figure five in the in the paper which shows this so basically you know the in QA way you have this like number of steps often mm -hmm. called T and in principle the the more steps you have uh, the better results you should be able to get yeah. because you know, the circuit is kind of bigger and is able to like compute more. The problem is that with imperfect devices, there is a trade-off that like once you get your circuit gets like too deep, mm -hmm. uh, then like the noise is just like killing any computations that happened you know, in the device. So if you run noiseless simulation, you see that like the, you know, and the results just like grow uh, very nicely when you increase p. However, when you actually look at experimental data, you see that you know at some point, you know there there is this uh, there is this point that your your algorithm starts to getting worse when you add more layers. Right. So, well, this is this is basically what we see in kind of all QA away um, QA away experiments. Um, mm -hmm. and this is something, so that's like one thing, this is something that like everyone is aware of. So mm -hmm. one of the, um, but one of the criticism, you know, of the, uh, in this reachability deficit paper is mm -hmm. that, well, actually that's, as, as you said, like if we go one step further, um, we are, we start getting like you know, much worse performance. And well, that's that's true. <laughs> Basically, that's true. But the other thing is that um, in Google's paper, they use like one specific methodology, kind of like specific metrics mm -hmm. um, that are not necessarily reflecting like the whole truth. So yeah. in Google's paper, the one of the metrics they used was kind of the mean value of the cost function divided by the minimum minimum value of the cost function. So basically, right. um, if you get one, that's, that means you got like solved your problem perfectly, right? If you have mm -hmm. less than one, um, well, that means that, you know, you still have some, uh, some space to improve. Okay. But actually, that's not the only metric that you know you can use for for QAA, because mm, 
another in, like important metric is success probability, right? So, yeah, how many how many um, samples in mm. how many samples you got were actually the the optimal solution, mm-hmm. right? So this is this is something. So these these are like two kind of basic metrics, mm-hmm. uh, which they used. So what actually they they used both of them in uh, both of them in Google's paper. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And does that? There's another. There's an interesting point in here that um, Google's Google's paper sort of ignores the fact. Um, the the direct quote is um, this finding suggests density, albeit a coarse graining, is the salient limiting performance indicator for fixed depth QAOA. Um, and density they're talking about there is the ratio of edges on a graph to nodes, and you can sort of see that in the performance on Google's original paper, um, bet- the difference between the hardware grid and the SK model and max cut. Um, in that the the hardware grid has the lowest, um, or sorry, the yeah, yeah uh, the hardware grid has the lowest, um, but not by much density. And then um, the the max cut, and then the Sherrington Kirkpatrick model. And as as those increase in density, they decrease in performance. I found that that was really interesting. So yeah. yeah, in this paper, in either of these papers, is there anything that you you want to point out um, overall that is um, particularly interesting um, moving forward? Sure. So so one thing is about this density is that like like what I consider to be kind of an open question is, well, we consider only density for max cut problems, right? Mm. And we actually don't know if the problem, you know, that the density seems to be kind of, you know, like a limiting factor in some sense, is mm-hmm. is a problem that we see only in max cut? Or do we see that also like in other Kind of problem like um, combinatorial problems that we might want to solve with QA way. Okay, interesting. So, w- one of the things is is like if when like while reading like papers about QA way, it's worth in mind, like worth to keep in mind that the discussion is usually about QA way on MaxCat and like very often on three regular graphs as well. Here, yeah. at least we have like different graphs, but it's not obvious whether we can generalize, you know, some of the findings to other more in, like more interesting perhaps problems as well. So let's say we want to solve, you know, max independent set or I don't know like job shop scheduling or traveling salesman with QAA, it might turn out that the density is like equally important, like even more important or like less important. Yeah. And there of course there's like some intuitions about this, but you know, there's not a lot of kind of um in-depth research 
and this is like one of the one of the open questions yeah Interesting. so that's like one one of the things and the other is the other remark about this uh, paper i mean more and more about the google's paper is that i really like it because this is one of the papers that like just show you what are the capabilities of the quantum computers today yeah. and like what type of problems can we solve and like what are the issues that we have there are more papers like this uh notably one from um eth zurich uh, andreas walraff group improving the performance of deep quantum optimization algorithms with continuous gate set um yeah. similarly you have like very nice experimental results that show you, yeah. you know, what are the issues when you come from noise, like noiseless simulation to experiment, uh, mm -hmm. and what to expect, and you know where where this should go. So if like anyone is kind of at the beginning of their journey and they want to get better understanding of like kind of practical quantum computing, like this this is type of the papers that I really recommend. Yeah. Definitely. All right. Um, last two questions I ask everyone. Uh, first one is, what is the biggest challenge that you see in quantum computing? So right now or ever or? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, right now or maybe next couple years. Okay. So I think one of the biggest challenge challenges is kind of ensuring the like, ethical use of the technology hmm. and like the kind of ensuring that like the technology will be used for uh like will really help you know address humanity's kind of needs rather than be used for things that are not like very uh you know Kind of useful mm -hmm. and i'm not saying that you know we are trying to right, right now we are, we are trying to use quantum computers for uh things that are useless but or we are, we are like considering it a lot but the thing is that we are at the point in the industry where a lot of you know things a lot of decisions we make really matter and mm -hmm. mm, Probably like many decisions, many like standards that we will decide on in the upcoming years will stick for the next decades. Yeah, and this is important to you know think about these topics. And you know, there's for example organization like QC Ethics, um, mm -hmm. where they you know discuss these kind of problems. And I think this is one of the challenges because like the technology itself is so exciting. And the yeah. potential is so so you know big mm -hmm. of what potentially can be done with that that you know it's easy either to like just get excited or just you know get there for for the money, but actually forget that you know we if you know if it's all managed properly, we could really use uh this for like the greater good and on the other hand, like there are, you know, 
this is not something that people in quantum computing uh, are necessarily experts on, right? I mean, mm -hmm. they are experts on quantum computing, no, on like ethical development of technology. Yeah. And um, I think we we just like there is the risk that we'll make bad decisions uh, regarding this, um, or like sub suboptimal decisions. So, mm -hmm. well, maybe it's not like you know the, the the biggest challenge that we face. I mean, if the technology doesn't work. You know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, so there are, you know, a lot of other like technical challenges for sure. Yeah. But yeah, I would say uh, we have a chance to, you know, make this technology kind of more ethical right now. So mm -hmm. this, this is challenging. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that's, a, that's something that I know that is a big conversation in the quantum computing community. Um, but I hadn't actually, no one's ever brought that one up on the show for this question before. So that's super interesting. Uh, then the last question is, what do you see as the biggest promise in quantum computing or something that has the potential to change the world the most in, let's say, the next up to 10 years? So I think, I hope, I mean, yeah, that's more, more hope. <laughs> and I think that we'll be able to, in the next ten years, you know, start working on some solving some like chemical problems, like problems in chemistry, in material science, and like, I, like yeah, and I think this might have start having you know impact. So I'm also involved in an initiative called Q for Climate where we, you know, try to figure out how the quantum technologies can be used, you know, to mitigate climate change. And I'm not mm -hmm. sure whether, you know, 10 years is like reasonable perspective to hope that this will happen or or not. I mean, yeah. You know, it's like very speculative at the at the moment, but I think that we like this is one of the for, for like for me personally, one of the things that like makes me more more excited. And yeah. like hoping that, for example, you know, we'll push on the research in material science, in chemistry that will allow to solve some of the, you know, problems we have with, for example, climate change and like other you know, problems that we, uh, we face as humanity. Yeah. And, you know, not claiming it will it will like solve all the problems like definitely not but like i hope at least right. we'll be able to like quantum computing community will be able to add this like one brick to this like the whole the whole thing yeah yeah um i think there's a there's a quote from someone i don't remember who but it goes uh, quantum computing is a tool not the solution so that's a that's a good perspective to have oh, yeah. um, awesome mikhail where can people find out more about you and what you're working on so the best place is uh, my blog, so mustyfoughts.com. Mm -hmm. Apart from that, you can follow me on GitHub. Um, most of the stuff I'm doing is on GitHub. So um, yeah, I think that's these are two best places, Twitter, LinkedIn as well. Okay, awesome. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've learned a lot um, and I'm, I hope that this is a useful and interesting episode for the audience. I, I know a lot of people have been asking about how do you get a job in quantum computing and hearing your perspective and your story has been great. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, 
Um, thank you for having me. All right, so I haven't received any corrections or questions from previous episodes. Um, I had somebody reach out to me on LinkedIn about some interesting math that he was working on related to quantum computing. Anyhow, uh, not worth sharing here yet, I don't think. Um, but if you would like to send me some interesting thing you're working on or some feedback, the best ways to do that are on minds.com uh, at one Ethan Hansen, or you can email me one Ethan Hansen at protonmail.com. Um, links to both of those in the show notes, as well as if you'd like to send me an anchor voice message, that link's also there. That's also an option. Just reach out to me. Let me know what you think. If I missed something, if I got something entirely wrong, that happens. Feel free to reach out to me and correct me. I love putting corrections here because it means that I'm learning and people listening to the show are learning. As per our usual arrangement, we've got links to all the things in the show notes. Make sure you go and apply for the Quantum Open Source Foundation Mentorship Program. Like Mikhail said, as long as you're willing to learn and put in the work, you're welcome to join. Mikhail also had two other resources that we ran out of time to talk about, but he wanted me to include as well. The first one is a blog post that he wrote on his excellent blog titled How I Got a Job in Quantum Computing. This goes into a bit more detail about his background and shows that you don't need to have a PhD to get a job in QC. You just need to have a certain degree of pre-existing expertise or knowledge and be willing to learn and work at what you don't know. The second one is a talk that Mikhail gave for a Zen for Quantum meetup titled How to Get Started in Quantum Computing. In keeping with Mikhail being very straightforward, it is exactly what you would expect from a talk titled How to Get Started in Quantum Computing. If you would like to support me so that I can make more and better episodes, please support me on Anchor. There's a link in the show notes. Or if you want to send me some iota, reach out to me and I'll get you an address. Also, I didn't mention this in the last episode, but I now have access tiers on my minds. Um, if you're interested in looking at terrible, terrible, awful, just completely garbage auto-generated transcripts that may come in useful sometimes, uh, or the actual scripts behind these episodes, like the scripts that I'm reading off of right now, uh, you can check those out for $0.50 cents and $1 a month, respectively. Quantum Computing Now is produced in partnership with TheQuantumDaily.com. The Quantum Daily aims to cut through the technical jargon and the overhyped fluff pieces to deliver quality, comprehensible content about quantum computing. If you enjoy this podcast and would also like text resources, be sure to check out TheQuantumDaily.com, which I have linked to in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.